Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-476 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, we have a super interesting talk with M.K. Lever about her dystopian college athletics novel, Surviving the Second Tier. And it's a hard book to categorize. On the one hand, it's a near-future dystopian novel about college sports, On the other, it's a scholarly critique of the current college sports power dynamic and some of its more destructive aspects. And then there's a love story and sort of a Rocky-esque championship tension and drama thing. Like I said, it's tough to categorize. And that makes it hard for a novel because we humans, we love to categorize. We love to label. Our brains go all weird and fuzzy if we can't. You can see this in every review of a movie or a book or something where they say it's like x or even in the startup world where the pitches will always say something like it's the uber of x and that inevitably makes it hard on books and businesses to gain traction because they have to forge their own paths they have to create their own market and sometimes it works because that cross-pollination finds a new unserved and undeveloped market niche and explodes. You see that. And sometimes it doesn't work because it takes a lot of energy to create something totally new, to create a new market. You have to explain to people what it is before you can sell it to them. And there's an old joke in the business world about pioneers typically having short lives. Anyhow, that's who we talked to today. In section one, I'll talk about this year's Boston Marathon because it's next week. And for the first time in a couple decades, I'm not going to be running it. I'll be I'll be hanging around it, but I won't be running it. I feel like I should say more about that, but let me just say this. And maybe I'm just having a good day, but I feel like I've moved into the sixth stage of grief, which is celebration. No, seriously. You know, I was out at Starbucks and I was wearing my, you know, one of my Boston Marathon racing caps and my New York City Marathon jacket, and and I'm wondering, you know, what if somebody walks up to me and says, hey, you run in Boston this year? You know, and usually for the last year, I might have said something like, eh, you know, apologize to him, like, eh, no, I hurt my knee. 
But, you know, thinking about it, thinking about that hat, the stories behind the hat, the stories behind the jacket that you and I have lived through, all they can really say right now is, you know, hey, not this year, but I did. And how cool is that? In section two, I'm going to talk about garbage because, yeah, garbage. (laughs) I've totally stopped running because my knee was super painful. Uh, It's been a year or so now, more than a year, so my fitness is starting to get down to a rock bottom. And it's interesting, right? I think about that motivational quote that you always hear. You know, the motivational guy says, running is hard, but being fat and out of shape is hard too. Choose your hard. And it's true. Being unfit is hard, man. It's hard. I've got some plans to change all that. We'll talk about that more in the outro. But going back to our dystopian novel topic, what MK is doing here in this novel is one of the things I really like about the creative vehicle of fiction in general and the science fiction genre in particular, which is setting those stories in the future or on a different planet or on a spaceship, right? That allows the creator a safe place to experiment to play with ideas, to sketch out alternatives, alternative futures, alternatives to today. And MK does that in this book. And you can think of other novels that you may have heard of that do this. How about H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, right? That was really a commentary on the class system. Or maybe The Brave New World by Huxley, huh? Or 1984 or Animal Farm by Orwell. Or The Handmaiden's Tale. All these great dystopian novels. Dystopian novels aren't about the future. They're about us. They're the equivalent of Marley's ghosts showing up to tell us what our what-ifs and our choices as people, how those are going to turn out as people in a society. So they're a teaching vehicle. So that's your homework, right? Go, Go read or listen to a dystopian classic novel and uh, and learn something about yourself and society. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The Boston Marathon wrap-up. 2022 bits and bobs. Next weekend is the Boston Marathon. It's also Easter weekend, so it should be a busy weekend. I have some running buddies running this year, as well as people coming in from out of town. And when we get close like this, up here in the area, Boston is in the air. It's very much the topic of conversation. We get the Boston Marathon effect, if you will. You see people out completing their final tune-up runs, but you also see people who just are out running because they were inspired by all this marathon talk in the air. And that's where they start, right there. And the news coverage picks up, not only here, but also the national news. I'll talk you through some of the national news. A certain individual who did a certain thing in 2013 picked this week to ask for a stay of execution. And so we can skip over that news item. Also in the news last week was the BAA deciding to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes over the Ukraine situation. And I'm going to skip that one too. There's always a series of press releases that come from the BAA itself about all sorts of stuff and about the elites that are coming to race. Mostly it's the usual 
suspects of Kenyans and Ethiopian elites. So the recent press release, the headline was, Fastest Men's Field in Boston Marathon History to Compete on Patriots Day. That's the type of press release they they, they put out. Sub-headline was, Triple Olympic gold medalist Kanisa Bakili defending Boston Marathon champions Benson Kipruto and Marcel Hugh. Headline, 126th Boston Marathon. And another press release was that they are also celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first time the women were allowed to race in 1972, officially, and inviting many of those original participants back. So that should be cool. Some familiar names in the women's field this year. Even though Sarah Hall dropped out due to injury, you've still got the ever-entertaining Des Linden and Molly Seidel. I love those guys. I love those athletes. On the men's side, we've even got a local guy, a Massachusetts guy, a contender, in Colin Benny, who was the top American in 2021, and he boasts a 209.38 PR. That's pretty good. And we've also got C.J. Albertson from California, who was steady Eddie last year, coming from way back in the pack to finish 10th. Also, Tatiana McFadden is returning to smash even more records, I'm sure, in the wheelchair division. There's a great article, really good article. You should go find it and read it um, recently in the Baltimore Sun about Tatiana. She's a super inspiring athlete and just a inspiring human being. Marcel Hugues mentioned above in the press release, in the headline. He is the wheelchair athlete who took the wrong turn last year. I don't know if you remember this, but yeah, he took the wrong turn. He still won the race, but he missed out on the course record because of it. So he's back. The other flavor of ink spilled around Boston as we get close is how great it is to be returning to an in-person race. Boston has been run continuously for 125 years, but now two of those years have been COVID years, and we missed one year, made it a virtual race, and then last year was uh, just the elites, but this year will be a triumph for a lot of people who have been waiting for a couple of years to run, get to run it in person. There's also seems to be some changing of the guard going on at the BAA. Our friend and elder statesman Tom Grilk, he's stepping aside from his president and CEO post. I get the feeling Dave McGilvery's role is going to change as well. And Dave will be running his 50th, yes, 50th, 5-0 Boston Marathon this year. And he has a big crew of 50 to 60 people joining him for the afternoon start, one of which is my running buddy Tim, who has a side gig as a local reporter. And I can't wait to hear the stories. Once you filter down through all that national news, you get to the local coverage. And that, that that's all over the country, all over the, the world. You get a lot of local stories about local people running the race. Bob, Bob the local guy, is running Boston. You get those stories. Bob is running for his brother who died of XYZ. And uh, one of those, interesting one, there's a nurse in Philadelphia, Sam, Sam Roker. She's running the race in her nurse's scrubs to raise awareness for the mental health of nurses. So that's kind of cool. She must have a good PR machine because she hit all the major news TV channels down there. And then there just are lots and lots of articles just like these where so-and-so is running for such-and-such and 
this element of fundraising, it's this major new part of the race. And I think, you know, everyone benefits from it. But once you weed your way through all that heart-wrenching stories of these community heroes, you get to the personal stories of success. And these are the stories I really like. <laughs> I really appreciate. And you don't find these stories in the national media or even in the local media. You find them in the blog posts and the Facebook pages of these runners in these clubs. And these are the stories of those anonymous runners toiling away for years to qualify failing again and again, qualifying but missing the cutoff by seconds, but then deciding, hey, this just means they have to train harder. Because for me, that's the essence of the Boston Marathon. When it pushes you past the point of your preconceived capabilities, when it forces you to explore new places of effort and pain and commitment that you would have otherwise never stepped foot into, that's when it changes you. And that's my Boston Marathon. And those stories don't make the news. Those stories are written in the freezing rain on a dark and lonely hill where no one would care if you gave up and went home. They'd probably prefer it. They already think you're an obsessive nut job. But to paraphrase another man from Boston, you choose to do it, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. So good luck to all my friends running Boston this year. Godspeed, you are the privileged few, and savor the moment. And now for today's featured interview. All right, so Katie, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm Katie Lever. Um, I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Texas at Austin, where I study NCAA discourse. Um, I'm also a former Division One athlete. You're a runner, and I was too. Um, I ran the 5K and the 10K at Western Kentucky University. Um, and I also have my debut novel out, which is about both my experiences as a college athlete and the issues that I research now as a doctoral candidate. Oh, so that's how you got to this point then is your research sort of resonated with your experience. That's always great when that can, when that happens. I love to see doctoral students that are actually studying something they do or have done, right? It just makes it, makes it real. It's a lot mm -hmm. of synergies there. So is that how this sort of came about? Your, your brain's working on the doctoral stuff and then your brain's also picking up these resonances from your personal experience and you had the light bulb moment? Yeah, because, you know, a lot of my research focuses on NCAA policy, um, which I think is fascinating and really exciting, but a lot of people don't. Like, policy is just not a very interesting topic for most people. Um, but one thing that I noticed about the policy issues that I was studying is that they had such a direct effect on the issues that I was reading about in the news that affect college athletes. Um, so things like, you know, injuries and mental health and, and athlete abuse, they were all linked back to policy failures. And so for me, the stakes of my research were very high. Um, but when I would, you know, when people would ask me about my research and I would start talking about policy, their eyes would kind of glaze over. And I was like, this is so important. Like, listen to me. Um, and then I, I, real, I realized I just need to find a way to make my research more interesting and engaging. And so I started to describe my research by saying the NCAA is a dystopia because I saw all of these elements that were present in dystopian literature, like censorship, surveillance, abuses of power and exploitation. And I thought it would be a great novel, um, okay. you know, and so in, in, in describing the NCAA as dystopia, that was what really helped me to have engaging conversations with people. And eventually I was like, 
maybe I should just write this book as a way to get my research out to a broader audience in a more engaging and interesting way. I like that. So did you have a background in any sort of dystopia? Um, you know? Yeah, I, I just, I love a good dystopia. I, I think that they, they just make the reader think about the real world in a very different way because the yeah. themes in dystopias, you know, they're obviously they're works of fiction, you know, but the themes are so resonant with our experiences. And I think, that that gray area where we're like, ooh, this is fiction, but it also hits way too close to home. And that makes us kind of uncomfortable and it causes us to think critically. So I've always loved a, a good dystopia for those reasons. Yeah, I'm I'm working on a apocalypse story myself. I have a, another podcast I do, and it's a lot of fun because you can ex- you can use everything you have, right? Mm-hmm. You can use your knowledge of history, you can use your knowledge of society, and you can u- put words into people's mouths to say the things that you want to say. And it's really fun because you can get a science fiction short story with one really good idea. That's, yeah. that's just like, wow. Right. You think about it for a week. Right. right. Yeah. And, and it was, it was that salience that really drew me to, to writing this book because the, the metaphor just, it really stuck with people. And so I was like, okay, this is a, this is something that people are interested in. They're grabbing onto the wordplay here and I might as well just run with it. I had a hard time trying to qualify it in my mind, right? Like, what are we doing? What, what, what are we doing here, right? Because on one hand, it's a, it's a normal athletic narrative, right? And mm-hmm. I start reading it, and I wasn't really thinking dystopia. I go, well, this is one of those things where an athlete has a, has a career, and they're all about the sports, and they find a way to talk about their career, right? And then I get a little bit in and go, no, there's something different going on here, right? We're in a different world. It sort of took, takes a left turn into the um, dystopia. It's, it's very ambitious. Kudos on that. It's almost like there's two novels in there, right? There's the original part, which is the narrative that felt, again, you, you left turned on me, right? Because I'm like, oh, this is the hero's journey, right? We're going to go to the tournament. We're going to have the, the, the wild success and mm-hmm. everybody lives happily ever after. And, you know, I was reading it on the Kindle and I'm looking at the page count going, hmm, <laughs> we're at the tournament and I'm still halfway away. Right. So so it's it's almost like there's two um, two lines there. So I don't know. What do you think about that? That that was my experience reading it. No, I yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I honestly one of my big goals with the book was to make it a human story, you know, because, and, and so you get it, you know, the hero's journey and, and, and just wanted to be a successful athlete. And, and those are, are just very um, overarching themes, I think of just being an athlete and being competitive. Um, and I wanted to, to make the story very human because something that I see so often in um, it, just in, in sports media and in athletic culture is there's this proclivity to dehumanize athletes. So to reduce them to, statistics or salary totals or like, oh, what is this team doing for me in my March Madness bracket, you know, and not to see the athlete as a whole person. Um, And so I did want to get at the issues and at my research because those things are very important to me. But um, the more important thing, uh, the more important or equally important part of that book, I think, um, is to really just describe athletes as humans with real fears and insecurities and emotions and relationships and to just get at the human aspect too. No, you're right. Cause they caricature athletes mostly, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah, caricature stereotype. Caricatures are designed to make us not see the rough bits. And there's this, 
this whole army of athletes, right? You know, they're kids and they just wash out, right? They train themselves into a, a broken knee or a, or a wrecked shoulder or whatever, right? And that's, that's it. Um, and the intensity of some of the, the training at the college level sort of is designed to do that, right? Because they, they, yeah. have, they have enough raw material that they can lose some. Yeah. And, and one thing that's been so interesting for, for me to see both as an athlete and as a researcher is there's this common misconception that elite athletes are very healthy people. And that might be true for, for some elite competitive athletes. But I think that what people don't understand is that the lifestyle of a college athlete and even professional athletes is really not sustainable for for most people for the long run. Um, So, you know, you do have athletes like Tom Brady that spend, you know, 20 or so years in the NFL, but that's really, really rare. Most, um, you know, collegiate and professional careers are maybe four or five years total. Um, And it's just not a very sustainable lifestyle because these coaches are trying to wring all of the usefulness out of their athletes. And, and, and so like you were saying, they'll train them into knee injuries. Um, and, and for me, you know, chronic hip injuries as well. Um, and, and so it really, like I've had, when I was in the recruiting process, there were programs that, that were described to me as these meat factories. Like you get the athlete in, you train them as much as you can and, you know, fingers crossed, they last all four years. And if they don't, then you'll just pull their scholarship and, and bring somebody new in. And so it, it can be a very, just a very objectifying, very, very cutthroat experience. They're not given, you know, it's not one of those things where you're, you're committing 70 or to 75% of your life to this you're committing a hundred percent, right? And then if you try to actually layer on the college part, which you're supposed to be there for, you know, that's getting, uh, it's, it's, it's too much, right? It's- yeah. You know, the NCAA makes a big deal out of calling college athletes, student athletes. Um, and there's a really problematic history behind that term because it was used in the 1950s to deny college athletes workplace rights and benefits. Um, but, you know, even aside from the problematic history, it's just not accurate. You know, you're an athlete student. Um, and, and, Isaiah Thomas was the one that uh, that uh, first coined that term, but it, it's very accurate that you know you 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 really do have to put your athletics before your academics, or at least give them equal time. And, and that was that was something for me in grad school where I was like, oh wow, now that I'm not competing, I have so much time to just be a student. And I really I've been enjoying grad school for that reason, just because I have all this time to just be a student and to just learn and to just have the um, college experience that I didn't really get as a college athlete. Yeah, because everything else is gone, right? You can't do everything else. And it really kind of depends on the individual because certain athletes or certain students are wired that way. Anyhow, they're going to work around the clock and that's a coach's dream, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the things in your dystopia. If you can find that person who has that, like you said, proclivity to, to work a hundred percent, then you can just use them. Yeah. And I was, I was honestly one of those athletes. Like I would run through a brick wall for my coaches and it, it didn't turn out well for me. Um, you know, I talk about uh, my chronic injuries um, a little bit earlier, just um, hip issues, knee issues that still come up for me. Um, I still have to do exercises every day to make sure that, you know, everything is functioning the way that it should. Um, and then as far as just different mental health issues that popped up for me post-graduation, um, lots of, you know, anxiety, um, lots of, of 
mental health issues and, and, and things that popped up as a result of being coerced to training too hard and into pushing myself and into just being injured and feeling very unsafe and unstable in my own body. And and so those were things that I definitely wanted to address in, in my book. And I don't think I've, I've mentioned the title yet. That's a bad oh, habit. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you want to give the, the, the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. So um, the basic premise of my book is that, you know, like we've been talking about, it's a dystopian novel that describes current issues in the college sports industry. The main world building is that athletic departments spend so much money on things like um, fancy facilities and nice gear and other perks to lure in recruits that they end up going bankrupt. And so the governing body of college sports steps in and says, okay, we need to save this business model. And so we are going to downsize from a multi-sport model to a single sport model to save money and preserve the industry. And so instead of having all of these different college sports, now the only sport is fighting. And it's fighting because it's flashy and violent and glamorous, a lot like college football. Um, But unlike college football, it doesn't require big facilities or a lot of gear or multiple officials. And so it saves money while preserving the lucrative aspects of college sports. Um, And so my uh, novel follows this team throughout their postseason as they're navigating um, performance anxiety and relational tensions um, and just dealing with a coach that is pushing them too far, um, injuries and just all kinds of other issues that college athletes do have to face in the real world. I'm, I'm going to show my age now back in the 70s when Prefontaine was uh, fighting the, the NCAA. NCAA. Remember that? Yeah, you don't remember, I, that. You don't remember that. I read about it. You read about that because yes. you're a you're a runner. Yeah. Yeah. Free pre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's um it like I said, it's ambitious. It's ambitious. And and it took me a while to wrap my head around it, but it was it was kind of a fun read. What we were talking about before, the other thing you get for these athletes, because they're sucked in so deep that when you get that injury, or even if the the school term just ends. You have this tremendous loss. It's like you you have this vacuum. There's nothing left, right? You have yeah. to sort of rebuild your life at 20 years old or whatever it is, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a sense of an identity crisis, you know, because at, l- l- like you allude to, you dedicate so much of your time and energy and you sacrifice so much for your sport. College athletes graduated 23, 24. And so you spent you spent over half your life on one thing. And then all of a sudden, it's just not there anymore. Um, and injuries can have the same effect. You know, it's like one day, you're doing fine, like you're having fun at practice, and you're, you're doing really well in your sport. And then all of a sudden, you're on the sidelines, and you're in pain. And, and there's all kinds of different, uh, just different baggage that goes with that. Um, but it really is like an identity crisis where you put so many eggs in one basket. And then when you don't have that, it's like, who am I if I'm not an athlete? Um, and, and I also, I, I talk about that in surviving the second tier as well through the viewpoints. You, twice, of, you got it in. Yes, I did. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do talk about that. Um, you know, you know and how my protagonist, how, how she has to deal with that as well, um, because it, it can be very complicated um, and just very hard to understand, you know, for someone who hasn't been a college athlete before. And I think it's something that we need to talk about more, you know, how much elite athletes put their identity and their sense of self-worth into their yeah. sport. 
Yeah, and I, I interviewed a an organization that's focused on that. There's actually an organization, a charitable organization that's focused on that. On sort of it, it's sort of like you would think about it as they're weaning people out of a cult. You know, they sort of they manage that transition for people who, you know, they have really bad mental health issues when they leave. Um, but the other thing you lose is you lose your whole uh, community, right? Yeah. So if you're your tribe. Right. So it's tighter than a community. It's a tribe. If you lose the team, you lose your tribe. And these are, you know, this yeah. it, it really sort of puts you up on an island by yourself. Yeah. yeah. And those those are very deep. And also they can be very complicated bonds. You know, a lot of people think that, oh, I'll you know, if you're if you're on a team in college, you must be like best friends all the time and everything is great. It's like, no, it, it it's more like a like a sibling dynamic sometimes, at least in my experience. It's like you love your teammates, but there are some times where you're just like, I could also strangle them. But it's a very deep, complicated kind of love, um, you know, and, and I wanted to get at that, too, because it can be very isolating to lose that when you graduate because you lose your team, you lose your coaches. Um, for some athletes, you know, they'll lose access to medical care when they don't have their training room anymore. Um, and, and you also lose a campus community too, you know, and so it's all of these different compounding factors that can really affect mental health and the transition out of college sports. What are your uh, policy findings here? What, how do they make this stuff better? That is that is the question I love uh, to hear. Um, honestly, you know, the NCAA, for one thing, the NCAA needs to do a better job of communicating with college athletes and assessing what their needs and their wants are. Um, the NCAA needs to stop resisting change as well, because we saw this with name, image, and likeness. Um, we're seeing this with athlete unions, which are going to happen eventually. Um, and the NCAA just continues to resist initiatives that would actually really benefit college athletes. You know, the very at least it's communicating that instead of actually talking to athletes, we're going to decide what's best for them. Um, and, and so I think the, the, the first step for the NCAA would be to actually sit down and talk with athletes, um, take their words seriously. Don't just do it for window dressing or to make yourself look good or to say, oh, well, we talked to them, you know, but we didn't do anything, um, you know, actually talk to them and take their concerns seriously. I think the biggest policy change that needs to take place would actually be scholarship policies, um, because there are common misconceptions about athletic scholarships where, um, you know, people think that they're guaranteed for four years and they're full rides. And that's actually not true for the vast majority of college scholarships. Most of them are, um, they're called renewable scholarships so they expire at the end of an academic year and most of them are partial scholarships so they'll cover you know tuition or room and board or meals but usually not all of them um, and so what this does is because you know especially because they're non-renewable what a coach can do is a coach can say um, okay if you don't shape up next season then I'll pull your scholarship or oh if you don't you know run this time by the end of the year, I'll pull your scholarship. And I actually, I had coaches do that to me. Um, and it, it creates a very unhealthy power imbalance between athletes and coaches. It does contribute to, you know, a poorer sense of mental health and of feeling like a part of a team. Um, it pits teammates against each other because you know that, okay, if I don't meet this goal, then my teammate will get my scholarship. So it kind of, it really complicates these inter-team relationships as well. And it, they're just not good policies for athletes. So that's the number one rule that I would change. Yeah. It's a scarcity model. It, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I'm I'm just I have this thoughtful look on my face because I'm thinking through this and the 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 challenges you face. I'm sure you'll have an answer for this. Is um, what we're optimizing for in this model is not the athlete's health, right? We're optimizing for money. Money. <laughs> so how do you fix that? That's going to take an entire mindset change, I think, you know, because there's nothing that is inherently wrong, I think, with the commercialization of college sports. I don't think it's wrong that athletic departments earn money from, you know, um, contracts and things like that in and of itself is not an immoral thing. What I do think is wrong is I think that you're not sharing the revenue with the athletes that generate it, you know, especially we're talking about like big time college football and basketball teams. That's a significant amount of money that is being hoarded from these athletes. Um, And I think it's just indicative of this greed mindset. And so the first thing that needs to be fixed in college sports, I think is taking the emphasis off of people in power and sharing it with the athletes and giving them a voice. So allowing them to, um, you know, write mm. collective bargaining agreements that um, outline different things like healthcare and academic and uh, athletic work-life balance and, um, you know, their needs for, for mental health resources and things like that. Um, I think that the biggest mindset shift that needs to occur is centering college athletes in this industry instead of just deciding this is our industry as consumers or as people in power. And this is how it's going to work. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's not necessarily money. The money is conflated with the performance, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So you're optimizing for performance and the underlying theory here from the people in power is that the higher the performance, the higher the money performance isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? So how do you redefine performance so that it's not unhealthy, right? Without losing the all the great things that come from you running a, a 356 mile. Yeah, I, I never ran a 356 mile, but thank you. <laughs> I wish I would have. Um, yeah, I think that I was actually, I, I was on a panel yesterday where there were medical professionals who were talking about performance and, and redefining wellness as a part of performance. Um, and, and the way that I view that is, you know, again, making it very athlete centered. Um, and, and I think my biggest takeaway from, you know, wellness perspective is that athletes that are happy and healthy are more likely to be high performers, you know, athletes that are scared or that are being abused or that are unhealthy. Yeah. Overtraining is a bad training plan, right? Yeah, and yeah, and and it's so it's just you know, bad. It's, it doesn't make sense. Well, and it's so tempting, you know. F- you know, and I see this a lot in in running circles. There's this big temptation for college co- for college coaches to prescribe this blanket eighty mile a week work week to all athletes. But the thing is, like, I was a lower mileage athlete. I did very well running fifty to sixty miles a week. Um, but it was when I was pushed to run 65 and 70 and, and we started going north of that line. That was when my body started to break down and that was when I was not doing well. Um, but there is this tendency for coaches to think like, oh, we need to keep pushing because we need to keep going in this positive direction. Yeah, and it's like, well, maybe you just need to keep doing a little more of what you're doing without going over the edge. And, and that that does require, you know, very clear and intentional communication with your athletes and understanding that happy, healthy athletes do so much better than overtrained and unhappy athletes. Well, that's just sort of laziness for them to say everybody does 110 mile a week. 
Right, right. right? Mm-hmm. But again, that goes back to the theory of I don't really care who it breaks. I'm going to find the three guys that can manage that load. Yeah, and honestly, like I and I never, I never want to excuse abusive behavior, you know, from coaches um, because there there is never an excuse for it. But I, I understand why coaches push athletes too hard, you know, because they're and I, I address this in my book as well. Um, but they're also stuck in this system that does not, you know, really favor 90% of coaches. Like, and you're not going to be earning millions and millions of dollars a year. You're not going to have a guaranteed 10 year contract. And so a lot of these coaches, they're also surviving this system that is, is some, at least somewhat pitted against them. Um, and so I understand it without excusing it. Yeah. Yeah, They're more incentivized to good times or wins or whatever on the board. And people will just, you know, look away when it comes to how they did that. Yeah. So it's interesting that I think I've seen in the last decade that holistic training meaning it's not just miles and speed and quality work, right? Holistic training, whatever the sport, including the mental part of it, has started to get a lot more a lot more play, you know, mm-hmm. even at the Olympic level, right? You look at Molly Seidel. So I think we're starting to, I don't know, maybe this, maybe it's science, maybe it's culture is starting to catch up with. Yeah, and something, a very encouraging trend that I'm seeing is, is more athletes are being open about mental health, which was something that even, you know, I mean, I went to college in 2012 and that was really not a big deal back when I was competing. I mean, I knew that I was anxious, but I didn't know that there was like a clinical term for it. I, I knew that we had a counseling center on campus yeah. and I was like, oh, I don't need that. Like, I don't have any problems. It's like I had. Right. No, you, so what you think problems. is this is just me. Nobody else is feeling this. Right. right. Yeah. And, and so I was me. like, oh. I was like, oh, I'm not like, I'm not one of those people. Like I'm not that. And I look, I look down on it, you know, and and that, and now as someone who, who does therapy twice a month, it's like, why did I not do this like a decade ago? Like I needed to start this so much sooner than I did. Um, And so it's really encouraging to see athletes be so open about their mental health struggles, because that's going to open doors for other athletes who wouldn't have pursued those services had they not heard, you know, Michael Phelps talk about it or Naomi Osaka. Oh, looks like we talked to the top of the hour. Sorry about that. I got carried away. So <laughs> so give us all give us all your links and and tell me what you what you learned from this writing the book experience. Yeah, I you know it, it is a debut novel, so I learned about creative writing, which was really fun. And I love creative writing; it's so much fun. Um, it's just so much different than than academic writing or freelancing, and so it's it's a new skill that I learned that I really really enjoyed. Um, I learned the value of, of community because you don't write, you don't write a book by yourself. I thought that was the thing that you would just write it by yourself. And it's like, no, you need test readers and you need editors and you need, um, you know, you need like a cover artist. Like there are so many different people that you need to help write a book and and there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And so that was a very important lesson to learn as well. Um, And and I just, it was very difficult and very challenging and also very rewarding. Um, And I'd like to, you know, continue to write more books in the future, but this one um, surviving the second tier, I'm going to say it again. Um, You can find it on Amazon. um, If you just, you know, search surviving the second tier, it'll, it'll pop right up. Um, And then um, I also have the links available on my social media bios. So if yep. you uh, search for Lever Fever on Instagram or Twitter, that's me and my links will be um, right on my bios. And uh, thanks for your time today. Sorry yeah, to overrun. No, you're all good. I appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. 
The Garbage Project. When I was growing up, we had a dump in town. In New England, you had a dump. Every town had a dump. And the dump was an enormous pit. It was a hole. And people would back up their station wagons right up to the edge and toss their trash and their bags into the hole. And one time I saw an old lady back over the edge and her car was stuck at the bottom on top of the trash pointing up. That was interesting. Childhood memory. And this is how people have been getting rid of waste since they had waste to get rid of. Just find a patch of ground or a hole, pile it up, pitch it in. Problem solved. Those old New England dumps, they're all gone now. Well, they're still there, but they aren't dumps. They are large grassy hills that burp methane. They have been replaced by the meek-sounding transfer station. Transfer station. You drop your bags at the transfer station, and they get whisked away. They get transferred somewhere else, typically a big furnace somewhere. Now, there was a trash crisis back in the 80s. You may not remember this. At least, that's what the media called it. We were going to run out of room. And with all good crises, their first priority was to look for someone to blame. And in the 80s, they blamed fast food wrappers, <laughs> disposable packaging, and disposable diapers. Those were the villains. They were filling up all the dumps. If we didn't do something soon, we'd all be up to our armpits and fast food wrappers and disposable diapers. Well, what really takes up all the room in old landfills? Well, it won't surprise you that we have an answer. We have an answer because of the Garbage Project. What, you may ask, is the Garbage Project? Well, a team of archaeologists at the University of Arizona back in 1973 decided to treat the old dumps like archaeological digs. The objective was to apply the techniques and tools of their science to the study of modern civilization by analyzing its garbage. This project has expanded all over the country, many sites, nationwide, and into Canada. And they have found some interesting things. They could date the garbage by the layers they found it in. Just like an archaeological dig, right? This way, they could correlate the type and the quantity of garbage with specific years and events. They basically dug sections out of these garbage dumps from the top to the bottom. So... Go back to the question, are diapers and fast food wrappers the culprits? Nope. Turns out 40 to 50% of all the garbage stacked up in our nation is paper. Yep, paper. The common assumption was that the paper would decompose. And sometimes it does. It depends on how wet the conditions are. And we'll come back to that wetness thing in a moment. But yep, 40%, 50% paper. In fact, 13% of that is just newspaper. So we may have already solved that problem by putting all the newspapers out of business in the last 20 years, right? So what's the second biggest contributor? Construction debris. Diapers don't even make the list. They don't even make a dent. So the fun factoid, probably, probably not true or maybe a little bit true, but they estimate that the city of New York is 30 feet higher than when it started because of all the refuse piling up. So why doesn't that paper biodegrade? In most cases, the stuff is packed together so tightly that A, the sun can't get to it, and B, it's an anaerobic environment. The little beasties that eat the trash, they can't live in that environment. 
And the other thing we talked about is moisture. Most of these dumps have been sealed, either with a liner under them or over them, which shrink wraps them and creates that dry anaerobic environment. Without sun, water, and oxygen, the trash is preserved in stasis forever. And indeed, there are lots of fun garbage project stories about 50-year-old hot dogs, no different than when they were tossed in the trash. And the big thesis of are we going to run out of room seems to be unjustified as well. We create far less trash by volume now that we used to. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, we're good at recycling now, right? We're all great, better people now. And of course, you'd be wrong because it's the packaging engineers. They've just made everything thinner and smaller. So the new stuff just takes up less room. They also found some interesting correlations to things, some things about human nature that we probably already know if we think about it. One fun trick they do is they have people self-report what they discard, and then they measure what was discarded. And of course, they find people will report differently than what they actually do. For instance, people will always report that they don't waste food, but the actual food waste is about 15% more than they will report. They also found that when their local municipalities, like towns around here, they run recycling programs like Hazardous Waste Day. And when this is in the dump, they see this is when the hazardous waste content in the garbage actually spikes. And what they think is that people, you know, because of advertising Hazardous Waste Day, they get their hazardous waste out, they collect it all up, and then they miss collection day and just toss it in the trash. And the same pattern exists over time, going back decades and decades, with shortages. There's a clear correlation to shortages. Like there was a big meat shortage sometime back. And whenever this gets played in the media, they find the content of that item, of that meat, for example, in the garbage, it spikes during the shortage. Now, how does that make sense? Of course it makes sense, right? Because we know people. People panic by whatever the shortage item is, and they end up throwing it away because they don't need it. So modern trash is a lovely and lively social science. But I like the old trash as well, and the old privies, and so do the archaeologists. And there's nothing better than finding an old outhouse to dig through. Yeah, we've been pooping in holes for thousands of years. Archaeologists can then go dig through that poop and learn all about the people who were there. They know what they ate. They know all about their health. One interesting thing about these ancient privies is they tell us about how the one percenters live, the top of society. Why is that? Because up until very recently in the archaeological record, only rich people had toilets. It gives you something else to be grateful for today, right? I'm guessing you don't have to poop in the woods like a dog. So there's that. And overwhelmingly, these rich folks from the medieval times and back had worms. Lots of worms. <laughs> Until recently, people had all kinds of worms living in them. And we know this because we looked through their poop. And I suppose there's some karma there as well. Another reason to be thankful. You don't have worms. I have two kind of favorite privy stories from the last couple of years. The uh, Both out of New York. The first one was from a privy in uh, brothel in Brooklyn. 
and they found all sorts of interesting stuff. Go look that one up. These ladies were quite concerned about their health and their cleanliness and their beauty. And there were combs and creams and ointments and syringes for personal hygiene. Very interesting. Uh, the second one is also out of New York. It was in the old Italian section. And they were going through this privy and they were surprised to find bones that looked like human bones. They thought they had a murder on their hands. Would have been a great murder mystery. But they weren't human bones. They were the bones of a monkey, an organ grinder's monkey. So there you go. From the lowliest and most soiled places can be harvested a treasure trove of information about the society of man. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, that's it. That's episode 4-476 of the Run Run Live podcast. And like I said, my update is that I have not been running at all because my knee was really sore. So there you go. But all hope is not lost. I did downgrade my flying pig marathon to the half marathon. Uh, no need to hurt myself anymore. And I got my mountain bike. Got it in for a checkup, got it cleaned up. And, uh, had, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little old, like everything else in my life, but I think it'll be fine. I invested in a good pair of knee pads and a, a new pair of mountain biking glasses, which I really like. So I'm getting ready for when the weather finally turns. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start by just building some base miles, getting used to the bike again, stay out of the technical trails, no sense in hurting myself. And start working in some yoga and some core strength, some stretching. So I'm I'm also back on the diet because I had skyrocketed to over 190 pounds with all the beer and the not running. Time to give up that beer and start start doing some exercise again, right? Yeah, my pants were starting to not fit. You know how it is? That first belt loop you can give back. The second belt loop, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> so back on the workout track and we'll see if the knee responds to uh, biking. It seems to. Uh, if it does, I'll work up to a longer event at the end of the summer. And the update here from this morning is I went for a nice long mountain bike ride this morning and I had a plan. I was just going to go over to the rail trail and spin up and down the rail trail on my mountain bike just to get a couple hours of saddle time and not stress anything out. But when I get to the end of the trail, the end of the rail trail, I was only like 39 minutes in. I needed more time. So I kept going and there's some trails into the woods, you know, some dirt roads and stuff there at the end of the rail trail. So I went out into those, did some exploring and one way it led to a neighborhood. So I pedaled around that neighborhood, but the other way it went to actual mountain bike trails, these nice, carefully crafted mountain bike trails with handmade signs that gave the trail names like barbed wire and such, because that's part of the mountain bike culture around here is to give the trails cute code names. And I took it easy. I explored the trails. They weren't that technical. When I got to a technical point, I'd dismount. <laughs> Again, I'm trying not to hurt myself. I avoided anything that might result in a crash or stress my knee out. And it was just the right level for me, just the right level of effort and activity for me. And then I rode back on the rail trail and got just about two hours of total seat time in. So interestingly, on the way back, I felt like, ah, oh, I'm totally out of energy. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. And it took me some time to figure out that, hey, you're hitting the wall, you idiot. Uh, so yeah, that's what the wall feels like, Chris. Um, been a long time since I've run out of energy at only 90 minutes in. <laughs> so good ride, baby steps. 
Yeah, and you know, so work too. Work's stressing me out. My my new role, it's giving me stress, taking up a lot of my head space because that's what happens, right? You think about it a lot, and you roll it over in your head, and you know, makes it hard to sleep, makes it hard to focus on other stuff. But you know, I'm working on it, trying to remind myself that I choose to do it, and I don't have to do it if I don't want to. And uh, I'm going to share with you a couple of nuggets for you to consider from my affirmation collection. So, i.e., these are affirmations. You can repeat these to yourself, or you can print them out, hang them where you can see them during the day. It's one of my habits to collect these things. You never know when you might need one. So the first one is, quote, no matter what happens, I will handle it. Just print that out, stick it on the wall, and that will remind you that you've worked through a lot of challenging times in your life, and you've always made it through. And this time won't be any different. No matter what happens, you will handle it. And the second one is a bit of a counterpoint to the first. Sure, you can handle it, but should you? (laughs) So consider this, quote, remove yourself from a bad situation instead of waiting for the situation to change. You can always walk away. You have the power. You have the aegis. And there's a nice little Greek loan word. You can use to impress your friends, Aegis, A-E-G-I-S. It didn't originally mean this sense of power that I'm using it as, but that's that's kind of the modern usage. Or I may be using it wrong. You never know. The original meaning is protection because it is derived from the name of the shield used by the Greek gods. There you go. Bring that up on your next time you're on Jeopardy. Anyhow, don't forget... It's always okay to protect yourself. You can always remove yourself from a bad situation. If you can't or you don't want to or you're not sure it's bad enough yet, right? Because we're we're tough people. We like to battle through. What do you focus on when things are crazy and stressful and your expectations may be a little out of whack? Well, what you do is you focus on – you narrow down your focus to what's right in front of you and you focus on doing the best job you can in the time you have on that thing on the things that are the most important, that are right in front of you. And even if you feel like you're getting overwhelmed or railroaded or set up, just focus on doing each thing well in itself. And I forgot who said it. It was, I think it was one of the Apollo 11 astronauts when they asked him what his secret to success was. And he replied that he just focused on doing the best he could with everything that came in front of him and didn't worry about anything else. And in the end, it worked out. So that's it. You can handle it. If you feel like it's unhealthy or you're being treated badly, you can walk away. If you want to play along, just focus on being excellent at the important stuff that's right in front of you. It'll all work out. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. Dum dum da dum da dum. Where's the Lone Ranger? Take his trash. Da dum da dum da dum dum dum.